Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. There we go, Sean. Marco. Well, thank you for joining me again. I know. This is uh, the, third, uh, the third chat, and I'm excited for the, the culmination of all of this because we're, we're talking about being prepared and uh, looking at animals and not looking at them, but uh, protecting animals. Why not? Why not? Let's but look now, at them. But now, yeah, we can look and hug them and everything. But uh, <laughs> we're doing that uh, in, in space. We're going to Mars with our animals today, Wow, we're, we're going farming on Mars. So that, I don't know if this is going to come up, but, uh, you know, maybe. Why not? Now, honestly, well, the question this is, is, is it legal to, to bring an animal to Mars? Uh, I don't know. Well, I think we can, uh, we can explore this. Uh, right. This conversation, as you mentioned, Sean, is number three. This is uh, Redefining Society. And it's actually the beginning of a, what I hope is going to be a really long relationship with our friend, uh, at the High Alert Institute and uh, with Maurice Allison and uh, all the network of that we've been discovering, the network of partners and experts that work with them all the time. And again, as you said, Sean, today we're going to probably go in space. I don't want to give away too much, but the first two episodes, we talk about what is the High Alert Institute. We talk about disaster readiness and education. We talk about animal welfare and environmental uh, interest and, and all the initiative and program that they have. And that's why we needed three episodes just to <laughs> introduce uh, what they do. And uh, without further ado, I would say I'm going to introduce... Uh, Maurice and Allison, which actually I would love them to introduce themselves for a couple of minutes, just in case people didn't catch up uh, the other two episodes yet, which is highly, highly recommended. So Maurice and Allison, thank you for being on with us again. Oh, our pleasure, Marco and Sean. I'll well, start with this, myself. Yeah, at this point, it's like uh, it's family, right? So just go, go with, <laughs> present yourself. You got it. Um, my name is Allison Sakara. I'm a nurse practitioner by trade. And with the High Alert Institute, I have been the executive director since it became a 501c3 in February of 2011. Uh, however, we have our roots 
uh, going back to uh, n the wake of 9-11, actually, where we began training and education and advocacy for disaster preparedness and response. And I'm Maurice Ramirez. I'm an emergency room physician and disaster medicine specialist, as well as an uh, as well as being board certified in AI medicine. And I'm the I service the uh, both the co-founder and the chairperson of the board for the High Alert Institute. Well, it's great to, great to hear both of your voices again, and and to dig into even more fun things that you get to get to help society with and. I mean, everything we've talked about has been super meaningful, and I suspect today's conversation will will produce the same results. And so, I don't know who wants to dig in here, but uh, I, I want to get into some of the work that you're doing uh, with NASA, for NASA, uh, space healthcare, AI informatics, um, all as as part of uh, the Higher Alert Institute. Uh, absolutely, Sean. Yeah, we, NASA, uh, many, many years ago, uh, when disaster preparedness was, was still an early mandate from the White House, from the Bush administration, NASA was actually uh, one of High Alert's clients uh, for disaster preparedness planning and, and education. Uh, since then, the, the relationship uh, has, has evolved, and it's kind of a funny story. Uh, it all started with our mutual friend, uh, Sean Case, the CEO of Enterprise and Space. And as you know, Sean is is very much a a, uh, a networker. He connects experts to needs, experts to other experts who who have a have a need or an interest in in common areas. And uh, you know, it underscores the interconnectedness of all people, all habitats. Uh, yeah, that that whole one framework that we've always operated under uh, with the institute. And many years ago, Sean and I met on LinkedIn. And in fact, Sean is who introduced us to uh, both you and Marco. Uh, but early in the pandemic, Sean uh, contacted us in the Institute. And he had some, he had a uh, small town in Pennsylvania that needed some help with public health messaging. And he had been uh, contacted by some of his friends from the space industry, experts in space law, who happened to live in that town and were part of, and were part of the COVID response for that community. Uh, and as we worked with them and, and Sean for the public health messaging and uh, reopenings and uh, reclosings for social isolation and then reopenings again and mass mandates and, and the, the town made face shields for healthcare uh, first responders, so helping them with, with those processes, uh, we got to know these two individuals more and learned that yeah, they were, as I said, international space law experts, but they were also involved with the International Space Court Foundation. Uh, and as the conversations grew, yeah, they started asking us about disaster medicine in space and asking us about real world and other real world, uh, if you will, uh, aspects of space healthcare. And over time, they even asked us if we would be interested in helping uh, with some of the uh, moot courts that the International Space Court was planning on holding regarding various health, space healthcare issues. It sounded like fun. Yeah. And again, as I said in our, in our last uh, session, Allison and I are both Trekkies. A uh, number of our board members are, are sci-fi fans. 
it sounded like a fun project and we needed something fun in the middle of, uh, of all the intensity of COVID. So we said, sure. And we started looking into it and, and treating it the way we treat any other project, doing some, some very real research, contact, reaching into our contact list, getting with our experts, experts who we knew, renewing relationships. And we learned a number of things. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we learned was that space law was all based in, in just a few treaties and, and a few uh, textbooks that were written at the beginning of, of the space race in the 1960s. Uh, and that everything had been, had been built more or less on that. We also learned that a lot of how space healthcare has been, has been authorized and regulated uh, over the last 60 years has been based in the cruise industry, which High Alert Institute had consulted to the cruise industry a number of times. So we were actually very familiar with the laws as they exist today that govern space healthcare. Uh, and and Maurice, can I can I interrupt? Is that is that sure. is that just is that because of the uh, the International Waters? Concept? Absolutely, it's because of the International Waters Treaty. The, uh, the in in cruise medicine, uh, I as an individual provider can use my Florida license to practice on a ship flag, say in in Bermuda or the Bahamas, uh, as long as that ship is at sea. Uh, or at port and I am on the ship, but I can't get, I can't get off the ship in a foreign country and practice medicine unless I have a license in that foreign country is the basic synthesis of how the international treaties uh, regarding cruise ship healthcare work. And that's the, the mechanism under which uh, space healthcare has generally worked uh, for, for uh, physicians or healthcare providers in flight. Uh, most healthcare is actually well before the flight here on Earth and performed by yeah, experts in aerospace medicine, people who are board certified specifically for aerospace medicine and, 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 uh, and the healthcare of astronauts. Uh, but that's not a model that will translate well when we start establishing new jurisdictions on the moon and on Mars, which was the, the emphasis for what we were being asked to look at. And so that was that was the first issue was that it what's worked up until now won't work going won't work well going forward. The other deals with, as, as you know, communications times right now, you have a you have a an expert uh, flight, uh, you know, flight surgeon who is a space flight surgeon in mission control at all times. And if there is a healthcare issue on the ISS or in space flight. Communications is a matter of seconds. It's telemed. You know, it's 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 a yeah, it's the progenitor of telemed because it goes back to the 60s, and it is the embodiment of the future of telemed to be you know, to be working with that healthcare provider in mission control while you're in flight in near in near Earth flight. It doesn't work as well when you're out to Mars, where the two-way communication can be up to 44 minutes, and there are periods of up to two weeks where there are communication blackouts. Uh, and, you know, and over time we, we learned that what these challenges were. We also, as we explored the various treaties and, and authorities and had opportunities to interview uh, and, and speak with our, our colleagues in uh, licensing boards around the world, that the, the various national and, and state licensing boards, both in the United States and abroad, have no interest or intention 
of extending their authority to the moon or Mars. Uh, they're, they're fine with following the cruise ship rule, if you will, uh, what we call the cruise ship rule, for having a, a physician or a nurse or other healthcare provider have a license while they're in flight, while they're in transit. But once you get to the moon or Mars, uh, if they don't want to extend that authority. That's, that's not their area of expertise and it's not their jurisdiction. And yeah, there are international treaties that actually prevent them from extending that authority. Uh, You're pretty so, much on your own. <laughs> and you can't practice medicine that way. You can't practice healthcare that way. Uh, no. and, and, and honestly, you don't want to be someplace where there is no regulation you know, or oversight of who says they're a doctor and who's allowed to practice healthcare because then there are no standards and, and not even a requirement for the proper education. Wow, it's incredible. It's, it sounds like sci-fi, but of course, as we often <laughs> say, it actually is not. It sounds like the future, but the future is now. I mean, right now I was going to make a joke about you know, there are on Artemis One, there are three mannequins that have probably have more sensors <laughs> than ever done before to actually study already, uh, you know, how the behavior is on the new, uh, on the new rocket and the new uh, capsule that we're using compared with. 50 plus years ago but so i'm interested and probably the audience right now is wondering what does it mean and how does it get involved an organization like uh, the high alert institute to prepare for these i'm assuming and 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 more in detail i mean it seems like so far away and humans usually don't worry about things until they happen but that's your job right so alison what, what's the connection there well, the connection is, in, in, in my mindset, is that you, you, talk, you were talking about science fiction. Well, to me, science fiction is just the nonfiction that hasn't happened yet in many mm. respects. <laughs> yes. How we got all involved with this was uh, the, um, in reviewing what were the published concepts of operations the different international space agencies that included NASA put together these, these concepts for healthcare in space. And that's what we were asked to get involved in. These concepts outline what needs will be included to face the challenges that would be anticipated and how to provide emergent and non-emergent healthcare without, as Maurice was talking about, the approval or oversight, how, how, does that, how, do, how can you make that work? What are some things that you would have to have in place for that to be a, a safe and effective thing? Well, these concepts have a whole lot in common with the disaster planning scenarios that we've talked about with you both before. In these concepts, uh, one of the things that was called for was an, an autonomous system, a freestanding thing of some sort to provide the guidance for healthcare that would be needed in non-Earth civilizations and habitats. But it does those particular concept documents don't propose or describe fully what that system might be, could be, should be. And so in the process of working with the International Space Law Group, 
we started exploring these documents and trying to address as many of those fill in the blank answers that that we could that we could come up with one of the first things that we needed to do was to look at what Maurice mentioned things about international treaties what have what's already been done what's already been said before and what we've learned in looking at these doc all these different documents is that yes absolutely space flight surgeons and the aerospace medicine specialists we're already working on those standards of care and board certifications thereof. This, this has been their specialty and their area of expertise for, for decades. Wonderful. We also were able to confirm that uh, Earth-based boards, the terrestrial boards that license people, uh, Mari said that already mentioned that they are not interested in extending the licensures to Moon or to the Mars. Uh, or to other situations. All right. So where do we? How do we address this problem if that if that's not going to be the case? So we'll come back to that autonomous healthcare AI. There's already been an ongoing effort to create what would be the algorithmic framework, the programming behind the scenes for this type of AI, artificial intelligence, autonomous healthcare thing. I, I say thing because it really hasn't been given a definitive name. <laughs> and, be, and many of the folks involved in that af effort, it turns out, we were already involved with because of a co-op that we had started several years ago, an artificial intelligent co-op, nonprofits and for-profits getting together to swap ideas and brainstorm and see how we could bring uh, synergy to to, the, to our passions in that particular field. Another thing that we learned is that different space agencies in, envisioned uh, 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 many similar things, that this AI system would be satellite-based. And so that actually answers some of the questions that I'm sure Maurice is going to get into that have come up with, how, so how are you going to regulate and how are you going to deal with the transfer of data, et cetera, et cetera. So we're kind of coming to back, Marco, to the whole sci-fi thing. And for anybody who is a Star Trek fan and knows the Voyager series, we're, we're knocking on the door now of the emergency medical hologram doctor. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we should call it all 9,000 or is that bad luck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Marco. So, let's call it Sal. I think we want to do that, Marco. No, no, sorry, Dave. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing. I mean, use the word "thing," Allison, and and that strikes me because I mean, what we're talking about here is something performing some actions on some other thing, be it human or otherwise. I su I suspect, and I'm wondering. How that, it, I mean, I'm just picturing this environment and, and the doctors seem to need to be technicians, technical people, almost um, kind of working, working the knobs and pulling the levers on the systems as much as understanding how, how the human body functions as well and the mind and everything else. So how, how does AI not be on its own, but actually interact and coordinate with the humans, with the doctors. Well, Sean, actually, that was something that, that the AI co-op 
and individual members within the AI co-op were already working on uh, on a terrestrial basis. Uh, there has been a movement in AI healthcare for about the last five years to create a decent what was what is referred to in the community as a decentralized artificial intelligence healthcare database uh, based on a blockchain opt-in system that would look at medical records and term and and evaluate what is the best therapies given a given individual patient demographics and environments and work habits and even preferences and 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 sent and uh, and emotional sentiments, uh, but they run into a number of problems. The first are privacy laws like GDPR and HIPAA, uh, which which have baked into most electronic electronic medical records the inability to compare records, uh, even at an even with AI, and that was one of the things that is solved when you place the AI servers in orbit when you place them in international waters. Uh, one of the other one of the other big issues that that comes up are data boundaries. Okay, great, I can do this. Let's say I figure out a way around HIPAA, or I figure out a way to comply with HIPAA. Because you don't really find a way around HIPAA unless you like orange jumpsuits. Uh, but you find a way to comply with HIPAA, and you get the electronic medical record manufacturers to give you the necessary access because now you're HIPAA compliant. And you get all kinds of information about the United States, but you need information in all the other major electronic medical records players worldwide because you don't want a system that discriminates against particular cultural groups or ancestral groups uh, or genetic groups that exist around the world. You want a real picture of what is human healthcare on a global basis. And that was the second big stumbling block to implementing a, a decentralized global AI. Uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Katzenberg, a cardiologist in fact, in 2017 published a, a model for such a system. He called it uh, six layer or six level uh, healthcare AI. And the idea was that one of the solutions for privacy would be to give each and every one of us our own AI engine, our own AI healthcare representative, if you will, uh, our healthcare advocate, somebody, or, or an electronic somebody, an AI that would evaluate how different, objectively evaluate how different therapies were working for us individually. And that then we would, as individual patients, authorize or enable that, that uh, AI to share that information at a machine learning level, no personal information shared with other AIs so that the greater healthcare community could learn from the experience of every individual patient over time with every individual therapy and diagnosis. And that kind of big data, massive data, when you're talking about nearly 9 billion people worldwide, yeah, 6 billion of which are in some way or another in an electronic record for healthcare, uh, that kind of data would be then available to inform and assist individual providers to make the best choices given their individual patient circumstances. Uh, that was the goal, and it still is the goal of, of healthcare AI. 
in when you apply that to space, what we call an AI-based uh, interglobal medical expert system, it's possible for the system to not only advise, but even suggest both diagnoses and therapies based on enough, if it's given enough information based on individual patient needs. Uh, and then the various space agencies in the event of a space disaster, the loss of healthcare providers uh, at an individual habitat, uh, they were looking for something that could autonomously, as Allison said, not only initiate care during the disaster, so start care or recommend care that could be done by bystanders in the same way that CPR is, is uh, sometimes instructed over the phone by 911 operators, but also handle the everyday healthcare needs until a new healthcare provider, a human healthcare provider could arrive uh, at, at a particular habitat on Mars or on the moon. And you know, that kind of a system is the, what has been envisioned by Katzenberg as level six uh, healthcare AI, fully autonomous, capable of, of initiating not only a diagnosis level five, but initiating a treatment without human oversight or consultation level six. Wow. And we still have no autonomous car, a level five or whatever that is, that they can actually drive themselves because we haven't agreed on that. <laughs> so now we're talking about all of this in space. But, you know, I, I'm going to go a little bit wild sci-fi here because I just can't not think about that because I'm envisioning this colony or you know whatever we want to call it i i don't like the the term colonization of another planet because it just remind me bad things that happen on this planet but you know bringing human uh societies let's say on other planets and and you're like but it becomes more of a necessity because there are no options i mean you mentioned until the, the the doctor arrive. We're not talking about, you know, an ambulance that'll get there in five minutes or even an hour. We're talking about it cannot arrive for for months if we're talking about Mars. So how how tough it is, and maybe that's where the High Alert Institute and and Alison, maybe you have something to say about this. How easy is it to make people imagine and project all of these when they have no concrete example of what you know, if there is a earthquake, say, you know, we've seen it happen. So this is what you need to do. But it's so abstract when you are in space. So either or, I'm just curious to know how difficult it is to put everybody's together here. To put everybody's ideas together? No, to, to get concrete, right? Yeah, to gather ideas, but also to get to the point where regulation are accepted or redacted or enforced, uh, you know, on something that is so not there yet. And yet we're talking about it. Well, I'm going to jump in, Marco, real quick. Sure. One of the thing is that we're not the only people, you, I, Sean, Allison, aren't the only people who have that sci-fi vision. So a lot of getting that initial awareness and buy-in and, and participation in developing these kinds of regulations uh, or regulatory frameworks. We're not really writing the regulations, not our, not our place or authority. 
uh, is to is to find the like-minded people, people who are already thinking about these ideas from different aspects, from aspects within healthcare, aspects within the law, aspects of of, of artificial intelligence, and aspects of ethics and and diversity and inclusion. Now, I I agree with that, and I understand that. I I, th I guess more my specific question was when you turn it into law. Like, you know, you, you go to Congress, you go to the European community or whatever, the European plus America plus the, the I don't know, the world community that has to decide about what's going on on Mars. Who, who, who makes this rule? And ah. I can see that there are a lot of issues. I make the rules, even, There you go. That'd be easy, you know. I, I'd love for you to, <laughs> to make the rule. At least you know what you're talking about, you know, enough. I mean, we're having this problem in in politicians nowadays, and I don't want to be polemic. I'm just trying, you know, to 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 raise a point here, to regulate something that they just don't understand that is not here yet. That is, uh, well, you see what well, I'm saying? Answer, yes, I do. Part of the answer is in the international treaties for the peaceful uh, the peaceful use and exploration of space. Uh, by international treaty, no earthly uh, jurisdiction can extend their authority to, a, to another celestial body, to the moon or to Mars. Uh, now, it's different if you're a ship free-floating in space. You're in international waters. You're under the flag of the country of origin for your, for your ship. Even if you're a private uh, space uh, company, you have a flag on the side uh, on the side of your ship, or and that that flag that you fly is the jurisdiction that you're under the laws that you follow. Uh, but once you land and become a habit, a, a an independent jurisdiction, a habitation. Uh, for instance, you harvest a crop, you manufacture your own food. There are a number of international treaty criteria that make you an independent jurisdiction. You're no longer under the flag of that country where you started from on earth you now have to you now have to legislate vote in your own set of of laws and rules and that has to be done at that at that habitation i yeah in, on, in the high lord institute we don't refer to colonies either we refer to habitats and habitations mm -hmm. yes. Uh, yes so you know that jurisdiction may extend a hundred kilometers in every direction around your your habitat the actual structure but that's your, you know, that's your jurisdiction, and the the various inhabitants of that jurisdiction, uh, in a in a democratic model, you know, will vote on the on the on their representatives or directly vote on on the laws and regulations. And of course, you don't want to spend the next twenty years writing them. What you mm -hmm. want to do is arrive with frameworks and examples, templates that you can use, and that's what the international. Uh, Space Court Foundation is working on is creating these these various types of templates and 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 uh, and examples so that a new you know, a new jurisdiction on the moon or on Mars can effectively pull it off the shelf, ratify it, and have a full set of societal guidelines, laws, what we call laws, and regulations for safety. Uh, the big deal uh, is we want to make certain that medical care, healthcare, and the devices that we use for healthcare, including autonomous AI, are safe and and effective, but primarily that they're safe. 
and and that uh, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to jump here in a in a moment, Maurice, and I want to talk about the the maybe this concept of safety um, devices and and humans uh, doing things. Um, I'm just picturing doctors having to train on new ways to treat patients. One, there are new devices, new applications, new sets of data. So there's, there's that aspect of it. And then also the, the way the body changes and the environment uh, does different things to us, I presume, <laughs> uh, when we're on a spaceship or perhaps when we, when we land on Mars, that'll look even different, um, more different. Uh, so I'm wondering how, how are doctors preparing for these changes and how they're going to provide healthcare? Well, the space flight surgeons and aerospace medicines uh, specialists, Sean, are already working on what would be those standards of care for treating people who are residing in space habitats, space communities. So at least we have folks with many years of experience who are bringing that already to the table. Well, what we envision at the Institute is for that to be inspiration to all healthcare specialties, not just medicine, but nursing, physical therapy, pharmacy, psychology, social work. Pick something that you know of in, in, in the realm of, of, of healthcare. All of those professions are going to need to have a space component integrated into their training, integrated into their philosophies, integrated into their observations and study of safety and effective therapies within their profession for space communities. And it's not just the people in space. Uh, imagine 50 years from now when we have flown enough people that we've collected enough information to make broad statements about the effect of space flight and, and microgravity and space radiation, et cetera, et cetera, on the human body. And you're a pediatrician here on earth and you have a pediatric patient who says, I want to be an astronaut someday and work on Mars. Well, if you, you therefore have to have that, even though you yourself as a physician never fly to space, and never treat a patient in space, you have to have the knowledge of what will this young patient need to do, need to prepare their body for, need to store up and build resilience for in order to have the most successful life in space when they eventually make it to space. Or take the opposite end. You're a geriatrician and you, again, have yourself never flown in space. You're not treating any old people in space but you're working with patients who used to be in space. They've retired. They have spent 20 years on a mine, yeah, working in mines or in research labs on Mars or on the moon. And they've, they've returned with their pension and their retirement to Earth. And now what are the challenges that face these bodies that spent 20 years in space, that spent another two or three years rehabilitating to Earth gravity? and now are looking to move forward in life and 
what do I, as a geriatric medicine specialist, which I have that board, what do I have to know about space flight and post-space flight, not being an aerospace medicine doctor, in order to take care of this person until their 100th or 120th birthday? So as Allison said, medicine and healthcare and nursing and all those medical professions and specialties are going to, over the next 20 to 50 years, have to integrate space healthcare and space healthcare concepts and space physiology into their practice. And to do that, and they're going to, and to do that, we have already learned with COVID and many other things, when you, when you bombard the specialty with that much new information, it gets very difficult to keep up. And that's where these AI systems that can be advisory to medical professionals, to healthcare professionals, to, to, uh, the entirety of healthcare at, across the spectrum uh, are going to be not just assistive, but essential. It's basically the next step of what do you have to have in your hip pocket, so to speak. When Maurice and I were coming up in our trainings, everybody had a paper bound book stuffed into their pockets of their, of their, of their jacket, of their coat, yeah, we called them peripheral brains. <laughs> then, then came the Palm Pilots that had that had the equivalent, but far more information, and you could flip to it faster. And today, we all use phone apps, similar, yeah, things like like Sanford and UpToDate and Medscape to keep up because the volume of new information that comes is is a, is a tsunami today and that doesn't even include space and now we'll wow. have the ai in our pockets yeah and and people use it to play little little video games but that's the story for another day uh so okay my my brain is just exploding right now and i think sean's brain exploded because it's not here anymore but no he, he had another <laughs> podcast to to attend i was gonna make a joke that the alien took him but um, anyway, he, he was very bummed about that because he loves this kind of stuff. He talk about technology, uh, health tech uh, all the time, especially when it comes down to privacy, data management and all of that. But me being more of a sociology kind of guy, I'm kind of uh, connecting a few things here in terms of what you guys do, and I think we can start wrapping our presentation for the High Alert Institute with the with the one frame, because as you're talking and you're thinking about all these different things, the legality, the, the privacy, the artificial intelligence, the actual operability of things, the communication, and then, you know, the new law needs to be done and new environment and habitat needs to be created. It's like, it's kind of like starting society all over again, and I'm going to be idealistic here and thinking we kind of have a chance to do it right, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe to do it very peaceful, and although there are uh, sci-fi stories about, you know, dividing the planet and starting our own wars there too, but I don't want to be dystopian. So maybe can we, Alison and, and Maurice, reconnect these with all the togetherness of everything that needs to come together in, in one frame of mind. Marco, you are so spot on. Yes, that's exactly what a one framework paradigm is trying to combine. 
taking the best of the best, the best of one of a one nature concept, the best of a one planet concept, the best of a one health concept, the best of 20 healthy people, 2030, the best of all the WHO uh, guys um, goals for, for, for 2030, bringing all of this together so that we can put our best foot forward. And yes, absolutely. As we move from this planet to others, try not to make the same mistakes over that we've done here. And, you know, Marco, you, you jokingly refer to uh, other planetary civilizations outside of our solar system. Uh, yeah, this, the theoretical science, the statistical probabilities are fairly definitive that somewhere out in the universe, there are other societies uh, and that at some point we will encounter them, maybe not in the next hundred years, maybe even not in the next millennia but someday. And wouldn't it be great if until that happens, we bring the best lessons from earth to space, perfect them and bring them back to earth for a better earthly life for our, our species and all the other species. And then when we encounter those other, the, those other societies from other solar systems, possibly even other galaxies, wouldn't it be wonderful that it was more of a united federations of planets, uh, peaceful, uh, cooperative effort where we've learned that it's not worth the fight rather than the, the all too common dystopian, as you said, uh, model that's used in, in sci-fi to relive and, and, and uh, reimagine the conflicts of the last 10,000 years of, of, uh, of human society. Yeah, you will think we would have figured out by now, but you know, the, here we are. Uh, I think it's fascinating, and I, I cannot wait to dig in into each single one of these topics and and, and project and plans and and an area that the High Alert Institute is it's covering because again we we try to wrap it in three episodes but we're gonna need many more and that's that's the beauty of it you know we're gonna start bringing other experts we're gonna start having panels together and it, it's gonna be great I mean for me now that we're looking at this thing especially in space like you know you mentioned our friend Sean Case that connected us. Every time I talk to him, I feel like we, you know, we're ready to go in, in in space for a very long extended time, and those fifty years, thirty years that you're mentioning, they look like three hundred, you know, even a thousand years from now because <laughs> there's so much uh, wish to do things uh, and and move forward in both exploration and science and and honestly, uh, society. I mean, our future, literally may depend on that in the long run. But let's talk to Rob about what people can do, not in a thousand years, but now. Uh, maybe, you know, if they want to get involved with the High Alert Institute. I mean, I of course, we'll have notes. We will put links on the website, for the website, uh, on the podcast notes. But 
a call to action by from the two of you right now. Um, how can people that listen to this and say, you know, I love what they're doing. What what can I do? Um, how can well, they get involved? We're a not-for-profit, and we have we have corporate sponsors who assist with with many projects. Space in particular, but many of our projects need not just corporate support, but support from individual donors. We, mm -hmm. we need help uh, to do this good work is not free. Although we do provide the fruits of the good work for free to those people that we serve. And so if people want to have real impact and produce a real legacy that isn't just this week or this month or this even this year, but has impact going forward decades, possibly even millennia, as we said, uh, want to have real impact in, in and real say in how we move forward as a society, as how we move forward at a very concrete policy level, then they can go to our website at www.highalertinstitute.org and click on the Donate Now button and donate, or they can click on a pledge button and pledge. And if they want to get our updates on the projects that we're working on and our educational updates, they, they can click on the button that says, uh, yeah, updates, and they can go ahead and sign up and we will, that will receive an email or two every week with a link to an article or a newsletter. Uh, and of course, opportunities to support the programs and projects that are of the High Alert Institute that are of greatest interest and impact for them. Well, I sure invite everybody to do so and uh, stay tuned for a lot more conversation with the both of you and I mentioned before other experts and thinkers that come. And I, I'm just going to wrap this with my, my thought that when people ask why do we explore, it's not just because we can, which is one of the reasons, as even Kennedy said, you know, because it was there. Why do you go to Everest? But but also because for me, it's a way to kind of look inward. It's kind of like the overview uh, effect when astronauts look at the planet from, from the space station or around the orbit. And you just see it as a whole, as a one and and maybe it's an opportunity to reinvent ourselves and, and understand who we really are and, and what we can do. So I'm getting very idealistic now, but I think the answer is 42. And, uh, and, with, that, <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'm going to close. Either you know what it is or not, but I assume that our audience will know why the answer is 42. So again, Alison and Maurice and Sean that already left, I want to thank you very much for all of this. I'm very much looking forward to so many more conversation and getting people involved. And um, as, a, as a recurrent episodic uh, number of conversation that they will, will have on Redefining Society in the next month and year to come, hopefully. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Marco. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you, Marco and Sean. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at 
bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.